0: Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here this morning. Uh, Our key scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you want to open your Bibles up there, I would invite you to at this time. We have a vision statement here, something that we believe in. uh, And it says that we believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. And last week when we looked at the church in Corinth uh we we talked about one of our uh our first values uh the belong value and we and we looked at how this church had uh, a a lot of different problems and a lot of them were relational a lot of them was in, were in how they were uh treating one another uh and 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 we saw how they really needed to grow in their sense of community and how they loved one another how they cared for one another how they treated one another uh this week I want us to look a little bit at our our second value. Our second value is grow. And what it says is that Jesus changes the way we see ourselves. Who are we? We are imperfect people. And in every moment, in everything we do, we need the love and grace of God that is found in Jesus. This need defines us, but it does not discourage us. There is always something better in Jesus, and we want to continually grow into that something. And what that says to us is that there is always, there are always areas, there are always places, there are always things that we can grow into in Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but I don't have this whole being like Jesus thing mastered. Maybe you do, but I don't. So I want you to pause for just a second and to think to yourself, what is the area that you feel like you most need to grow into? Maybe it's loving other people. Maybe it's forgiving other people. Maybe it's speaking to other people about Jesus. Well, this morning, you get to hear about what mine is. You are so lucky. Blessed are you amongst people. You get to hear about Bryce's faults. Our scripture is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-10. through I've read this passage to you often, and as I tell you every time, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, I love it for so many reasons, but but here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because... When we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, as I said, I love this passage, but my favorite part of this passage is verse 4. I love verse 4 so much because... Uh, It speaks to a deep truth that both convicts me and says something so profound that I feel it in my bones. I don't know if you see it there like I do, but every time I read it, it gets to me. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. And this is the part in particular. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what? Life. May be swallowed up by life. Paul sets up this wonderful illustration for us. While we are here on earth, we are not where we are supposed to be. In fact... This place is intended to be temporary. That's why we leave it. It is a stopping point on the way to the place where we are supposed to be. But while we are here, we are living in a tent with the knowledge that we have a home waiting for us. It is like, he says, walking around naked When you have the knowledge of what it is to be clothed. It is not right. It is not comfortable. It is not where we are supposed to be. And and that's the point that Paul is making. While we are on earth, we are away from God. And while we are away from God, things are not going to be right, period. Because this is not where we are supposed to be. It is just the place in between. And that's where verse 4 cuts me to the middle. We are uncomfortable because we are waiting to be reunited with God. We are waiting for things to be made right and things will not be feel right until we are with God. So we wait for what is, I love the terminology, it's not an accident, for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. And do you hear what he's saying there? What is mortal, this place here, is not what? Life. It's not life. This will be swallowed up by what is life. When you are here, and the things of here, these things, they are not life for you. They are temporary. And you are just here until you go to the life that is real. We are growing. There is always something better in Jesus, and we want to continually grow into that something. And that value speaks to what Paul is describing here in this passage. There is always room for us to grow, more ground for us to cover in our spiritual life, until what? We leave this place. And we go to where we are supposed to be. I love this verse. And I hate it so much. I love it because it speaks to something that is true in my heart every time I read it. I hate it because I know that I treat my life here like it's real. I treat my life here like it's what matters. I hate it because I feel terrible... (coughs) And I know in some sense that I value this place, what it has to offer over what is to come. And don't get me wrong, I believe that heaven is better than here, but I also like it here. And I think that most of the time I act like this place and what it has to give me is what matters. I treat this place as if it is my life. This passage reminds me of what is temporary and what is permanent. It reminds me that my heart, my eyes, my mind, everything about me needs to be fixed on what is real. What is real? And the real is not here. As much as I may get enamored with this place, this place is not real. And this what this place will one day be swallowed up and go away when I go to what is my life with God, through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Perspective is a hard thing to keep when heaven seems so far away. In fact, our very idea of heaven says what? We live here until we die, and then we go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's what's messing us up a little bit. So how do I change my thinking so that my future is what is real now? And my present is just my way to get there. Okay. <clears throat> so I was uh I, I was I was pretty honest with you earlier today. I'm gonna be more honest with you now. And uh I, I this is this is something that I that I have a little bit of a of a struggle and a hard time with personally. Um and and the thing about this is, is that I really I want I want my perspective, I want my heart, I want my mind to be all about my future, about the return of Jesus, about going home to that real home that we have with God. But I struggle against that a little bit because I get wrapped up in the things of the present. Um And this is an ongoing, and 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 this is a little bit weird, I think, probably for me to say to you, because as your minister, I I know what I'm supposed to say to you. I am supposed to say that, um, you know, I... I hate the world and everything in it that I want to go to heaven and be with God, that my feet are firmly planted in the things of God in my future, and that I am not into the things of this world, and that in fact, I see right through them, and they have no sort of influence over me. But if I told you that this morning, I would be lying to you, and um you all would know that I would be lying to you uh some of you ask me regularly how many pairs of shoes that I have, so you know that there are some things of this place that I like, and some of them I like very much. So what is the real truth for me then? And maybe this is true for you as well. The real truth is that the things of this place, of earth, of the world, they draw my attention and they distract me all of the time. All the time. Whether it is money, or possessions, or home, or what my kids get to do, or what I want them to be able to do, or what I want them to be able to have, or where, or what vacation we want to take, what I hope for us to have, when I hope to retire, what that retirement looks like, what our goals are even for the next couple of months, how we're going to pay for baseball and basketball, and then do all those things. When I look ahead at my life, I am most often not asking the question, when is Jesus going to return and end all of this? I am most often looking at all this and saying, how can we advance? How can we do more? How can we have more? How can we live a life in this place that seems to be fulfilling in perhaps all the wrong ways? And it's an ongoing list of things that are relentlessly knocking at my door, trying to get my attention. And I want you to know that this is a fight that I feel like I lose way more often than I win. Having my eyes, having my heart, having my mind in the right place. And can I just be completely open and say, sometimes it's hard for me to tell the difference between... What maybe I think God wants me to do and have. Or how he wants me to live and what kind of a lifestyle he wants me to live. To tell the difference between that and just what I want. And what I think is good. And and maybe maybe you've even done this before yourself. Maybe you've called something you've wanted a blessing from God. When God never really entered the picture in terms of you having or doing that thing at all. Does that seem somewhat familiar? A little bit. Good. I'm not the only loser in the room. <clears throat> that's, that's really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for some solidarity here, people. Um, is this too honest? Is this too honest for, of a discussion for us to have? Should we pretend like we have it all figured out and that we have a clear separation in our lives between what God wants us to do and this, the things of this earth? Or should we just tell it like it is and, and maybe admit that the pulls and the draw of this place are constantly, are constantly getting in the way. That they're constantly getting in the way. There's something that we've seen in the story as we've been covering it and looking at the overarching story of God throughout the Bible. And there's something that we have seen in the story that we might not have talked all about that much in this particular context. We've talked about it, but maybe this gives us slightly new eyes to look at what our history as humanity has been. If you remember, there are three main characters in the story. There is God. And God wants more than anything else to have a close and intimate relationship with his people. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his. And he wants them to be all about him. And he wants to pour out all of his love and blessings on his people in everything, and every situation. And on the other side of the story, we have the tempter, the evil one, Satan. And what is Satan's one goal? It is to turn us away from the God who loves us and he will do that in any possible way that he can i had a conversation with someone this last week about something they were struggling with and this is something that i have learned over the past 6 months is that satan is looking for the right button to push and so he'll push a button and if it's not the right one guess what satan will then do he'll push another one and if that button is the right one what will he do he'll keep pushing Until he finds the right button, the right place, the right sensitivity, the right scenario, the right thing to make you say, maybe I want this instead of God. And here's the scary thing. There may be times that that's happening that we're not even aware of it. That that frightens me a little bit. It really does. We are in the middle. We're being pulled in either direction. We're, well, we're being asked to go with God, and Satan is actively trying to pull us away from God. We are in the middle, and we have a choice, but we are being pulled in, in either direction, and there it is. We are being pulled, sure, but we do have a choice as to which direction we go. We have a choice as to what we want to make our lives about while we are here In this place, but what is the story told us over and over again? When we are given a choice between God and something else, what do we most often choose? We most often choose something else. Let's look back, though, for a second. When God took his people into the promised land, so Joshua is going to take the people over, the Canaanites are living there, but God has promised them. This is your land, I will give it to you, and God wins battle after battle for them. And if we look back, we remember something, which is that God wanted the Canaanite people to be destroyed. To be out of that area. He didn't want the Israelites to be around them. And the reason why was that he did not want his people to be pulled away toward other gods, toward other practices, toward other values other things that were not him. And how did this work out? Not so great, right? Even though the Canaanites were, were driven out, the people of God still adopted the practices of the people who had been there. And in particular, during that time, there were two different things that they took on with the greatest regularity. And they both were forms of idolatry. Uh, they started worshiping, if you remember this, star for you, they started worshiping the Asherah poles, which were, you know, trees that were kind of stripped down and just stuck in the ground. That was one thing. That was one idol they went to. But the main idol that we hear throughout this time is that they started to worship what are called the Baals, B-A-A-L-S. These were Canaanite gods. And... Uh, in general, the Baals were gods of fertility. So if you were planting crops, if you had animals, if you wanted more children, you would go and you would make offerings to the Baals, and this was an effort for you to have you know, the increase in the fertility that you wanted. So here's how this played out. When the Israelites were exposed to this idea that, look, this is a God who can help give you the increase that you want, what did they do? They went to those gods, they sacrificed to those gods because they were looking for that increase. Now we can write this off as plain old idolatry, but there was something more subtle that was happening, which still happens for us today, and that is this, when they were given the choice of trusting in a God who wanted to ultimately give them everything, they looked at their situation and they said, well, but I need more crops. And so what would they do? They would choose the God who could give them more crops when? Now. Who could have their animals increase when? Now. Who could make their lives better right now instead of this future that they were waiting on. They turned to invented gods that they believed would reward them right here on earth, right in this moment, that would give them what they wanted now and not later. Well, how does this relate to us? I just wish it would. I wish there were some connection to us. I'm just going to take a stab here in a couple of ways. I think the point is that we often, and this has been shown through the story, and it's shown through our behavior and the choices that we make, We often, if not frequently, if not always, tend to prioritize right now over the future we have been promised. And I don't want you to think about even just right today. I mean, we tend to sometimes prioritize our retirement over the future we've been promised. We tend to put the things of this place in front of what God has told us we can and will have. And the Bible tells us that we are here in this world, but we are not of this world. We live in this place and we're surrounded by this place, but we are not of this place. And we are not of this place because even though we live here, we are waiting for what is to come. We are waiting for what is to come. When what is mortal will be swallowed up by life we are waiting for the return of Jesus we are waiting for this to come but we don't know when it will come but we're waiting for something that we can expect to happen any time Jesus could return at any time yes Jesus could return at any time so, do we live our lives like people who believe that Jesus could return any stinking time? No. No. I, I, don't, I don't think that we do. I, I know that I don't feel like I do. So welcome to my public therapy session. And I am grateful that this is a place where I can talk about this with you. I'm grateful for that. Because we are a spiritual community where one of our core values is what? We belong. We belong. We bring these things to one another and we wrestle through them together. Now, in order for us to have some sort of perspective even further about what I'm talking about, rather than just sort of identifying we have some sort of deficiency here. There is something that was happening in the early church that is difficult for us to appreciate because of all these things that we've already talked about. And this problem particularly showed itself in uh, a church that Paul started in Thessalonica. Now, these people in Thessalonica, they chose Jesus, sometimes at great risk to themselves. And based on the gospel that they heard, they expected that Jesus would come at any time. There was just one problem. They were waiting and what had not happened? Jesus hadn't returned. And people maybe would even come up to them and say, well, when is Jesus going to return? And what would they say? I don't know. But he's a coming. And it will be sometime. Now, Remember we talked about with Corinth last week, the place of many, many troubles. (laughs) These people are figuring out what it means to live a life that is based on the teachings of Jesus and the fact that he came to this earth, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and now he's with God. They're figuring this out, how this community looks different. And we saw how in Corinth, the community didn't look different than the, than the community of Corinth. And so when Paul speaks to them, he says, here are the things you need to change to stop being Corinthians and start being Christians. And it starts at the most basic and fundamental point. Well, in Thessalonica, it was a pretty much a, it was a very different situation than in Corinth where we have chapters and chapters and chapters of instruction to the church in Corinth, that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are fairly short and brief and to the point. But here's something interesting that had happened. They had believed in the gospel. They had done all these things. But people were asking, when is Jesus returning? Well, we don't know. And then someone suggested, well, I think Jesus already came back. I think you missed it. And these young Christians hear that and what do they think? Can they say that they didn't? Well, we 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 don't think we missed it. But what if you did? What if he's already come back? What if these things? And so Their hearts were broken, they were discouraged, and they began to lose hope because they had based their lives around this concept and all of a sudden it has been brought to their attention that maybe they weren't even on the train when it left. So what were they to do? What kind of hope were they to have? How do you wait for something when you don't know when it's going to happen and because you don't know, what happens if you miss it? And in the end, what do you actually believe in that keeps you going and motivates you to be like this Jesus who, whose return you're waiting for. All of these issues may seem a little silly to us now, but that is part of our problem. When do we think Jesus is coming back, really? When do we think we are going to meet God in Jesus? When our life here is over? which does not mean when Jesus has come back for us. It means when we die. This is the expectation that we live with now. It's not that Jesus might come back tomorrow. And it's not fear that we've missed it or that we're going to miss it. It is, well, it's going to happen sometime. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to die. Jesus will take care of everything else. I want to just suggest something. I think that that viewpoint, that idea about going to heaven, about Jesus returning, about when all this is over, robs us of something essential. It allows us to compartmentalize things. This is my life. This is that life. But these Christians in Thessalonica didn't have two lives. They didn't have now and later. They had one life. And that life was lived trying to be like Jesus and looking for his return. Not waiting for it. Looking for it. Decisions, choices, who they were, what they did, all of these things were around the core belief that Jesus is coming back and it could be now. We, I, have no sense of that urgency. I don't. So, I look at this and I think... What needs to change? What do we believe and how do we live out that belief? Because one thing is for certain, this group of people understood the return of Jesus in a much different way than we do. So let's take a look at them real quick and figure out who they are and what's going on. So uh, if you want to open your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Remember, I told you that uh, Paul helped start this church. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city official, shouting, "...these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus." When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. And consequently, they then sneak Paul out of the city. So Paul comes to start this community. And he does what he always does, right? He goes to the synagogue, he teaches the Jews, he teaches other Gentiles. Some people believe, some people don't. Now, something I want to point out to you, which is truly fascinating. Look at the argument that is brought against Paul and then by extension Jason and these other Christians. What does that argument sound like? Who was it used against? It was used against Jesus. This same argument. These men have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are defying whose decrees? Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. If you remember from when we looked at the crucifixion, what was the thing that Pilate kept asking Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? And what does Jesus say? Did I say that? Where did you hear that? And then they mock him and put the crown on him, saying, here is your king. And it turns into this whole fiasco of Rome... Giving the Jews what they want, but also poking fun at them at the same time. Fine, here's your king. You say this guy claims he's king, here's your king. Is this what you want? Is this all these different things? So, this is the environment into which this church is formed. Is it peaceful or is it hostile? It's hostile. And they are facing some of the very same arguments and things that Jesus himself had to face... And were in fact the justification for sending Jesus to the cross. But they were given the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God. That he died, was buried, and was raised again. That he ascended into heaven and that he will return. And these people that grasp onto this message, they grasp onto it all the way. How do we know that they grasped onto it all the way? Because if you're in a hostile environment that is hostile because of what you believe... You better believe you mean what you believe, right? You don't sort of half-heartedly decide you're going to turn yourself against half the city. It's a choice that they make, and they choose to believe in Jesus. But then Paul had to leave because the place wasn't safe for him, and what is Paul's mission? To take the gospel where? To the world. So he's going to go somewhere else where he can teach the gospel. But the Thessalonian church, these Christians are left in this environment. And then, like I said, these other messages and things started coming in and they become confused. They lose hope. They're discouraged. They don't know what to do. And so Paul writes back to them. And it's a very different letter, again, that he sends to them than the one that he sent to Corinth. And at its core, it's a different letter because these people in Thessalonica, are they're pretty decent people. Listen to what he says about them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 10. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia. I'm not sure that's how you say that, but that's how I said that. The, Lord, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and that other place. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. I would love for someone to write a letter like that about our church. How important, though, were these words to a group of people that were struggling to figure everything out, that find themselves in a place where they're like, we, this is what we think it is, but what if it's not? And what do we do if it's not? And how can we be sure th- that it is? Listen to what he says. They were chosen by God. They were chosen by God. Listen, what happened with you coming to believe in Jesus was not an accident. God has made this happen. They received the gospel with the Holy Spirit, with power, and with deep conviction. Did they half-heartedly turn to Jesus? No. Did they turn to Jesus and try to be like everyone else around them? No. They gave it everything that they had. They became imitators of Jesus. They were actually living their lives in a way that Jesus modeled for them. And they did this with joy even though they were suffering at the same time. There was joy to be found in living like Jesus even though they were suffering. And they became models of what it meant to be a Christian in a place and time where people were just figuring it out. They were doing it. They were doing it. And and the message went out from them and their faith was known everywhere. People were talking about them. They were talking about them. They had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues from the coming wrath. How these words must have encouraged them. Thank God we're not off track. Thank God we are not off track. But there's still fear and uncertainty. Why? Because church... This thing with Jesus and this future that we have and the return, there is, there are unknowable things that are wrapped up in it. And when everyone else around you is telling you that they know and you're saying, we don't, how does that feel? <laughs> we learn from them that in, in spite of all the good things about them, they were still needing to grow, right? I mean, how stunning those words are, how encouraging they are, how much we want to be like them, but guess what? They still had ground to cover. There were still crucial and vital things that this church needed to understand and to grow and to become. Uh, Paul speaks to them a little bit about morality, about staying away from sexual immorality, about doing these sorts of things, but they are still living with this fear and uncertainty. Their faith needs to be strengthened. They need to grasp on to the message that has been given to them. So we see this in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters... but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. All right. So what is the message that Paul gives to them? Number one, you don't know when Jesus is returning. And you're not meant to know. This is the way it is. Jesus will come like a thief in the night. However, you are not like everyone else who are living in the dark, are not paying attention, and don't know what they're talking about. You don't know when he's going to come, but when he comes, you will be what? Ready. He's not coming like a thief in the night for you. He's coming like a thief in the night for everyone else who are not looking or expecting or waiting for this. But you are. And you live in the light, so therefore you are not going to be surprised when Jesus comes back. So keep looking for him. Because these other people, they don't know what they're talking about. At night, people sleep and they get drunk. That's how smart they are. So you can hold on to the gospel that you have been given. You have been given to the truth. Hold on to that. Listen again. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ you can trust that what is going to happen. What's going to happen? Jesus is going to return. And what does Jesus' return mean to these people? It means salvation. It means redemption. It means going home to be with God. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. We may live together with him. Great. So, you're waiting. What do you do while you wait? And what does waiting look like? Well, let's keep reading. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. How do you wait? Well, number one, you have to believe that it's going to happen. And that could happen anytime and any place. And you have to decide that you are going to live your life in that reality. And if you make the decision to live your life in the reality that Jesus is returning at any time, then here is what you do. You live in community with one another. You encourage each other. You build each other up. And when you encourage and you build up, what are you doing? You are encouraging and building up so that people are living in this new and good life that God has for them and looking forward to the return of Jesus who is going to come and bring you the salvation that you need. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Do what is good for each other and everyone else. Rejoice. Pray continually. Give thanks no matter what's happening. And here, hold on to the good and reject the bad. Hold on to the good and reject the bad. I read this list and do you know what occurs to me? that living a life of expectation is way more simple than whatever it is I think it should be. It's way more simple. What does he tell them? Be about Jesus. Be about the community of Jesus. Be about helping others grow into Jesus. Be a place where people are lifted up into Jesus. And when you hear the negative things, let it go. And instead, hold on to all the good that is surrounding you. Listen, this is a group of people that was doing so much good. And because of messages and words that they heard, they began to live in fear of something that wonderful that God was going to do for them. They began to live in fear of something wonderful that God was going to do for them. And what does Paul tell them? There is so much good in the life that Jesus is offering to you and the salvation that is coming in being a community That changes the world. How do you wait in expectation? You become about Jesus. You embrace who he is and what he has promised. You put him at the center of who you are and what you do. And when you do those things, you get to live in this joyful anticipation of a salvation that's coming. Amen? I want to be a Thessalonian. I don't want to be a Corinthian. Paul had to speak these words, these words we've already read to the church in Corinth. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be enclosed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. He had to remind these people of that because what were they doing? They were living a life that was wrapped up in the now. And what they could get now. And what they could have now. And then the Thessalonians on the other side are a church that is heartbroken. Because they're afraid they might have missed the coming of Jesus. And without looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, they don't know who to be anymore. How different are those two things? We need to understand something. The coming of Jesus defines our current reality. 100%. The desire of our hearts should be for Jesus to come back as soon as possible. Lord, come quickly. And I... I'm going to live my life not like I believe it's true, like I know it's true. And therefore, how I live is going to mirror Jesus in every way possible. How I live in community is going to be a place of goodness and encouragement because we have good news for one another. We have good news for the world that Jesus Christ Is the Son of God that He came to this place, that He lived, that He died, that He rose again, that He went to heaven, that we have salvation through Him, and guess what? This is the best part. He's coming back for us. He's coming back for us. And we look forward to that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus. We are grateful for the way that he changes everything. God, we are tempted to believe in this world, in this place, and everything it lays in front of us. We are tempted in so many ways to prioritize all the things of this world, to desire, to want, to gather, to keep, to hold on to this place so strongly. And yet, God, you remind us today that this is not real. That you have a home that makes this tent look terrible. That you have a home that cannot even be compared to this temporary place that we are just stopping in on our way home to you. And you have promised that your son will return to take us to that place. We want to go there and to leave all of this behind. May we live as those who know that's true. May we embrace that promise. May we offer it to one another in the world. And may we live in such a way that this place is changed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in this way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.